This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We hope you're beginning to look into General Assembly, June 17th to the 21st in Birmingham, Alabama. Experiencing Christ's love is only the beginning. Pursue your call to love God and love your neighbor as you join your fellowship family to worship, learn, and grow together. Through innovative training experiences, nightly worship, partner events, and a vibrant exhibit hall with live podcast interviews and entertainment, you'll meet Cooperative Baptists from around the United States and beyond. For more information, visit cbf.net backslash General Assembly. Our guest for this week's conversation is Brian McLaren, the best-selling author, speaker, and activist. I get to say with so much glee that Brian is a friend of the podcast because this will make the third appearance on the series. To my joy and to the audience benefit, Brian, thank you for joining the conversation. Well, it's great to be back with you again. Glad to be here. You know, when you were last on the podcast in March of 2018, uh, we discussed the prevailing racism and xenophobia at work within our culture, along with how the church responds. Uh, You spoke a great deal about pastors caring for their soul as they go about leading the church in and through these matters. And yet here we are a year later, and it feels like progress is more like the tortoise race that's uh, not even taken the first mile in a marathon. the great uh, Carl Sandburg might have put it best when he wrote, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on my way. Uh, where where are we in this process? <laughs> Boy, I can think of a hundred fun ways to paraphrase that. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm sure getting there slowly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think we're, we're, as a culture, we're stuck. I don't think things are bad enough yet that they are capable of getting significantly better. Um, you, you know how that is in so many things in life. Uh, things don't get better until they get bad enough. You know, we don't, we don't decide we're going to change our diet until we cross some number that we never thought we'd cross on the bathroom scale or we don't, uh, uh, we don't you know, start getting exercise until we have a heart attack or something. And I, I think, I just think we're showing that we need things to get worse before they're going to get better. I hate to have to say that, but I, I think it's true here in America. Um, but on the positive side, though, for a lot of people, things are getting bad enough and people are making some courageous decisions. You know, I, I think if you look at the, uh, the political election, uh, midterm election, uh, uh, we last year, there were a whole lot of people, younger people, more women, more diverse people, 
who decided to run for office. And I don't think we would have had as creative and energetic a group of people run if things weren't getting bad enough that a lot of people said, I got to do something about this. I think that's happening on many, many levels. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that's a reason uh, to be encouraged. But if I could maybe say one thing that's a little less encouraging, I would have to say I'm disappointed by the number of pastors who are still so, I'm just going to use a strong word, cowardly when it comes to addressing the realities of white supremacy, um, racism, Islamophobia, xenophobia, and so on. Well, I, th- I think some of our congregations uh, don't know things are bad. I mean, their ministers might That's know, right. but but how do we as ministers direct our congregations to, I guess, to use the illustration you've said, how do we get our congregations to get on the scale to see where things are health-wise? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing. I think the Bible really, really does this. And I just think so many of us, we don't realize how effectively we've been trained to not let the Bible uh, do its work. Let me just give you an example. If you take the Sermon on the Mount, a big part of the Sermon on the Mount involves Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I say. So you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder with him in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you, you know, look lustfully upon uh, your neighbor's wife or whatever, you, you have uh, committed adultery in your heart. So there's Jesus trying to say to people, you've got this moral standard that you might feel like you're meeting, but I'm here to up the ante. Uh, you know, that more is, is uh, God is calling for more uh, uh, in, our, in our lives. And so that kind of thing is everywhere in scripture. Um, Just even the call to love our neighbor as ourselves. And and then Jesus just goes messing with us by making it clear that your neighbor includes your neighbor who's an outsider, your neighbor who's an outcast, uh, your neighbor who's even an opponent, uh, even an enemy, that the call to love keeps stretching us in that direction. and. What, what's striking to me is how terrifying it is for so many of our pastors to have to challenge people to just do stuff that's really, really obvious, uh, you know, in, in the scriptures, especially in the teaching of Jesus. So, um, and of course, there are reasons for that. It's because it doesn't t- take too many times where a preacher does go there and does try to help a person realize that 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 political enemy or that political football is also your neighbor. Uh, And and then the pastor gets punished. He gets three angry emails and two people who say they're not going to give to the church anymore. Um, And, and so, you know, people find ways to punish us. um, And very often we then are domesticated. I, I think that's where we, you know, podcasts like this can be a shot in the arm to people, to, to, to leaders, to remind them, Hey, let's keep going. And it can be a reminder to members of churches that when their pastor takes a risk 
they should know their pastor is going to have some angry emails. They better take the time to send an encouraging email. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I like to think of this podcast more of as cattle prod to the rear end than a, than a pot. No, <laughs> that's good. Well, that's a good thing. And we need them. You know, we need those reminders because there are a thousand, if it's a cattle, cattle prod to the rear end, we could say there are other people who are stoning us with marshmallows or who are, who are like a, 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 a a swarm of mosquitoes trying to uh, intimidate us into being cowardly. So uh, yeah, the cattle prod's a good thing. Yeah. What it never ceases to amaze me with you is that, you know, you have to bring Jesus of Nazareth into the picture to change our white evangelical perspective on things. Well, I mean, this is the thing we've got to face, especially, you know, you and I, as we speak, we're both in the, in the American South and you just think, this religion thrived while slavery was happening. And, and people forget, if, if you don't mind me getting a little uh, direct here, people forget that a huge part of slavery was sex slavery. You know, all those masters, they found out when they had that much power to whip people and force them to work and all the rest, they, when they had that much power, you know, that old saying about absolute power corrupting, Pretty soon, they were using that power sexually. And, and so all of this horror is going on. And there's no way, you know, people try to, to make, to, to, you know, sand off the edges of it. But it was rough and it was ugly and it was vicious and it was corrupt and corrupting. And yet folks showed up at church every Sunday and their preachers blessed them. And the whole thing went on and on. And and so we just have to realize we can't, we don't, I know we like to tell all these myths about the good old time religion that was good enough for my father. So it's good enough for me. Well, it wasn't good. It was corrupt. It was dishonest. It was full of hypocrisy and it was full of exploitation and full of white supremacy. If we're, we're going to be frank about it. And so it's time for us to really face that and, and, and we have, we're not just trying to hold the line and keep from sliding down the slippery slope. We got to realize we slid down this slope a long time ago and we're trying to climb back up the mountain. <laughs> I think one of the things that, that might weigh heavy on ministers' hearts is, is uh, you know, it's, it's this weird, delicate dance of being prophetic and pastoral. Um, yeah. You know, at times we, we, we speak our convictions. We, um, we speak on things that are, are difficult for many of our congregants to hear, to receive, to, to put into practice. And, and so, so oftentimes what is said is, is received as pessimism and negativity and that can, yes. that can be yes. crippling, you know, at yes. times. Um, so, so where do we, where do we see that balance of, of yeah. prophetic and pastoral? Yeah, and well, I think that's a really great question, and I I don't think I would have any sensitivity at all in answering that question if I hadn't been a pastor for 24 years, and I realized that it, it really is a dilemma, um, and there are things that people who are not pastors can say in the prophetic realm um, that would be a whole lot harder to say, and they would have to say differently and at a different pace if they were in a congregation. But again, that's no excuse 
for folks to just become chaplains to the status quo. You know, if you're a gospel, if you're a gospel living, gospel loving, gospel preaching pastor, then a chaplaincy to the status quo is not one of is not one of your options. So I think there are things pastors and other pastoral leaders can do. For example, you know, I mean, Jesus got away with saying, "You brood of vipers, you bunch of hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs." That's probably not going to be the best way to preach this uh, Sunday. Although maybe it would get through to some folks. Uh, but I, I think there are ways a pastor can say, hey, listen, everybody, this Sunday, the scripture is challenging me and the Holy Spirit within me is challenging me to address some issues that I think are going to make us uncomfortable. Um, and I need you to know, I'm not just attacking you. I'm, I'm examining myself as well. In other words, if, if we help people, we don't just go to them with the end product, but we help them see our own struggle with these issues. I think that will really help. Um, I think if we tell the stories of our own changing opinions, you know, just l- l- let me give you an example. Um, I, one of my moments, like whenever I think of this, I'm, as I think of it right now, I feel just a cringe and I feel remorse and I feel horrible, but it's true. It's part of my life. When I was in elementary school, I brutally bullied a boy in my neighborhood who uh, had special needs. I, I don't know what his diagnosis was. I'm going to guess looking back that he had a form of autism. Um, but we didn't even have that word back then. All we knew that he, he um, I won't even use the word that we used for him, uh, but I was cruel to that kid. And, I, and I, I was just joining in with the other boys who were, we were so afraid of being bullied that we relished the opportunity to bully someone else. And I'm so ashamed of this, but it was, it was there in me, right? And now as an adult, I have, a huge amount of compassion, like that fact that I, I was so hard-hearted as a kid and so unwittingly joined in that bullying, it has had the effect of changing me to make me extra sensitive about many of these issues now. Well, I think we can tell stories like that about where we have failed and invite other people to face realities about that sort of thing in their past. And then we can invite people to say, where is our growing edge right now? Is it possible that you have attitudes toward people of other races or other parties or other religions that someday you're going to wince about the way I wince about how I behaved to that, that boy when I was in you know, fourth grade or whatever? Uh, so I think there are ways we can humanize the change process and help people realize this is how it's supposed to work. This is what growth looks like and feels like. And nobody wants you to feel ashamed and, and uh, condemned, but we do want you to feel that you're growing. I, I feel like that, it wouldn't be that hard for us to cross, to turn that corner. Well, I think it's important to note that Jesus might not have necessarily gotten away with saying all those things because they did end up putting him on a cross. 
he didn't get a promotion, did he? <laughs> no, no. And I, I think that's the the challenge as you know, local church pastors is you want to speak your convictions, but oftentimes it's it's that it's that day to day. Um, relationship building, uh, the nudging, maybe nudging is more the work of pastor than shoving. Um, we want, to, I, I like that. We yeah. want to shove and that's get, a, a get away with it and think that's going to change people. But, um, you know, if you can't invest time with your people and love your people and, and them to know the earnest nature of your heart, um, maybe what you are speaking will be received, uh, with more of uh, pessimism and negativity and condemnation than if you truly care for your people. I, I don't say that as if I have perfected that myself or even have come close to that, but I've experienced that more in my life that the, the more people I tend to care for and can speak prophetically into the, the better it's received. Now it's still a hard message, but it's, it's received in a different tone than, than if I'm yes. just speaking I, my mind harshly. If, 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 uh, if love isn't there, we should expect it to it to not it, we should expect it to wound and and not bring transformation and not only that but then we have to face the fact that maybe the reason we're going after this sin or this person isn't out of love it's out of embarrassment we're embarrassed to have a person this backward part of our church right i mean there are there are things like that that there are motivations like that inside of all of us um and, and so then that's going to force us to come to terms with our own need for transformation, which is not a, a bad thing uh, in the long run, although it, it can hurt sometimes. Um, uh, I, I think I, I think there's one one way that maybe we can learn to be more courageous in addressing these very real issues in our culture right now. That are we know they're ultimately fueled by a kind of tribal politics a kind of win-at-all-costs politics that has so many dimensions to it, uh, you know, and, and people are spending billions and billions of dollars, and they're even more important, they're making billions and billions of dollars by stirring up this division. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not our fault. It's, it's just a reality we have to deal with. But I think it, it goes something, it, it, I, I would call it leading by anxiety. <laughs> Um, I, I saw this. I remember I was preaching once at the story, the book of Nehemiah. And what's so interesting about Nehemiah is he doesn't show up on the scene and say to the people, I have this bold new vision of a great new city with walls built around it and the city's rebuilt. He starts by taking people on little field trips and walks around the city and he weeps and he, and he basically just communicates to them, I'm brokenhearted about the way things are. I call that leading by anxiety, leading by brokenheartedness. And if we as pastors can say, uh, it breaks my heart when I see, you know, people treat other people in a certain way. Uh, when we say, I'm really worried about the divisiveness uh, in, in our country. I'm worried about where this could lead. That, um, that expression of emotion on our part is not condemnatory. And it, it, it's a fact, right? It's honest. And I think it helps create a, a, an environment of honesty. And then people can, you know, enter into, um, enter into conversation with us. Even when we have to do a difficult confrontation sometimes, if, if, you know, we walk up to somebody and we say, I love you, brother, but, you know, as soon as they hear that, but they know they're about to get 
to get, you know, reprimanded or something. But if we're able to go to them and say, hey, uh, you know, Fred, uh, I'm really, really worried about something and I really need your help. Well, what, what do you need my help with, Pastor? I'm really worried that you and I could get into uh, an argument about something that I, I love you. I want to be your friend. I, I, and I just don't even know how to bring this up without, because I'm so afraid of offending you. I'm really hoping you'll be able to listen to me. It, can, can you, you know, can you cut me some slag on this? In other words, we create an environment of vulnerability on our part that, that hopefully allows us to get a message through that might be delicate. That's very different than just coming in with a judgmental statement. And, um, and that, that extra heart effort on our part sometimes is what it takes to, to get the message through. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. The hard facts for many congregations um, is that our culture seems to think that they are irrelevant. And a recent study found between six and 10,000, 6,000, 10,000 churches will close their stores this year. And you've been writing about the shift for <laughs> nearly two decades now. So yeah. what, what do we say to these congregations? How do we console and yet challenge? Uh, what do you see happening next for the church? Yeah, well, uh, so um, Andy, let me say my my hopeful thing first, and then I'll say something a little less hopeful, and then hopefully in, I'll then be able to give some something practical. But the hopeful thing I would say is that I do think the church as it has been has carried more toxins in it than we realize. In other words, our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of church and our understanding of ministry and mission has carried a lot of white supremacy that, that we're still not aware of. It's carried a lot of, uh, it's carried a lot of us, them antagonism. Um, and, and for that to get, and, and I think if, if that goes on, if, if that is re-energized, the world is not a better place. So I, I feel that the difficulties we're facing are actually necessary for us to rid American Christianity of some of its toxins. And I think we have the chance to come through way, way better than this. But like chemotherapy to get rid of cancer, it's painful and it might even feel like, you know, it might feel like dying at some, at some point. Um, now on the, uh, 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 on the more uh, difficult side of this, 
what I have to say is that one of our problems is that younger people are dropping out. And what I would say is any efforts to bring younger people back to the church as it is, I think have a very low chance of success. And so I think what existing churches have to do is decide to become the church that is needed, or they have to make space for other people to create the church that is needed. And, or they have to make space within their own church for new forms of church to be created that, that is the church that's needed. And, and it's going to be very different, and we have to be, um, we have to be open to that. Yeah. Now, you might want to ask something about that, but I, I'll, I'll just add one other quick thought that, that people really need to hear. All of this is not, uh, you know, it's not our fault. <laughs> um, for example, a lot of people don't realize that, that over the last 100 years, thousands and thousands of counties in the United States have had a declining population while the national population has been growing. In other words, you know, if we could go back 100, 120 years, America was a, a nation of small towns that served small farming uh, economies. And in 100 years, small farms have been replaced by big farms. And we've gone from a largely agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy to an information economy. And all of this has meant that people have been on the move. And so there are so many small rural churches where people are just leaving and young people are leaving. They aren't just leaving the church. They're leaving the, com the county <laughs> and, uh, and that part of the country. So we have to take the pressure off ourselves for that reality. Although I personally think that if our churches had been doing what they should have been doing 50, 75, 100 years ago, we would have realized what a good and important thing small farms are, and we would have you know, done more to preserve them. But given that, that that has taken place, that, that those kinds of demographic shifts have taken place, one of the things we have to do is stop feeling guilty. And, and instead, we just got to say, this is a reality, this is where we are, and now what are we going to do about it? And what that's going to mean is that some churches are going to need to be given permission, just as you said, to close to end their life as a church with dignity and celebration. Look at the amazing good this congregation has done over these last 75 or 100 or 150 years or whatever. And, and to give those churches a chance to celebrate their, uh, their great history, and if at all possible, to do so before they consume all of their assets. Because you know what happens, a lot of congregations start going into debt, running in deficits, and by the time they, they breathe their last, they have debt that equals or exceeds their assets. What would be so much better is if earlier uh, in that stage, they were able to divest and then make their assets in one way or another available for the church of the future. That would be an awesome thing. And it's happening in many places. But as you say, the number of church closings is going to increase. And that, and if it could happen sooner and more positively, that would be a great thing. How do you sell that to a congregation? Well, you know, um, sometimes the bookkeeper is the key to the congregation's future. And uh, if you can go to the bookkeeper and say, 
Could you run the numbers for us and help us uh, and tell us, given our current trends, when can we no longer afford a full-time pastor? When will we no longer be able to afford a part-time pastor? What year will we no longer be able to pay for our uh, pay for our basic utilities and insurance and so on? In other words, you 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 get somebody to run the numbers, and numbers have an amazing way of making people uh, creative sometimes. And um, uh, and 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 I don't think this needs to be done with any shame at all. I just think it becomes a matter of. You know, the Bible lifts up the value of wisdom and we can help people say, let's, let's be wise. I, I do think even a term like a church dying, which I even use that image, I, I just think that's, uh, sometimes it's not the most help, helpful imagery. I think, you know, I think we need to talk about, um, churches that decide to divest and make their resources available, uh, somewhere else. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, we have to make sure that we don't waste those precious resources. I think what we have to do, be sure we do then is we have to be sure that a significant portion, if not 100% of those funds, need to be creatively and smartly invested in the church of the future. Uh, and we're still in the R&D uh, phase of that, that work. So... Uh, even there, we, you know, we we have a lot of a lot of work to to do there as well. Well, let's maybe shift gears a bit, if that's okay. Sure. Um, just in case you have forgotten, but you've authored a new kind of Christian: the secret message of Jesus, a generous orthodoxy, naked spirituality, the great spiritual migration, and many more books. So, why did you decide to write a children's book, Corey and the Seventh <laughs> Story? Yeah, well, first of all, I should say I had so much fun writing that book and being part of a creative team with the co-author Gareth Higgins, who is an Irish, uh, Northern Irish uh, peace activist, and Heather Lynn Harris, who's an award-winning illustrator. But what happened is we were uh, we were kicking around. Gareth and I were kicking around this idea that I developed of six stories that lead to violence and our need for a seventh story that leads to peace. And, and um, this, this little schema of seven stories really came from my years as a preacher where I just realized in the gospels, there were these six kinds of uh, drama going on and Jesus comes in and confronts each of them with an alternative story. Um, And so uh, as we worked on it, we decided that, um, the best thing we could do is make this accessible to children. Uh, and we came up with the idea of basically an all ages children's book so that we hope that a, a eight year old would read the book and, or maybe an adult would read the eight year old, the book and both would gain um, some good insight. So that's kind of the, that's the genesis of the, the, uh, of Corey and the seventh story. So what's the biggest challenge in moving from, deep theological discourse to, to writing for children? <laughs> well, we struggled to get the book uh, down uh, to somewhere around 2,000 words. So, uh, you know, boiling things into a, a tight narrative, is uh, that's a challenge when you're used to writing books that are 60 or 80,000 uh, words long. Uh, it's a whole lot easier when you find yourself working with a, uh, an illustrator. 
um, uh, who, who, so the, the stories can tell part of the story. You, you don't need, you don't, or, I'm sorry, the pictures can tell part of the story. You don't just need the words. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, the, the truth is it, it was a hundred times more fun than it was difficult. What's your, what's your greatest hope for the book? Well, um, our, our, my greatest hope, I suppose, is that kids could grow up with more story fluency. Um, uh, the, the, what happens, the story is about a, 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 a village of animals and a, a young raccoon is really, really curious and he, he, he's interested in people's stories. And so this raccoon uh, uh, watches as neighbors engage in six different stories. Uh, in adult language, we could call them the story of domination, uh, which is somebody trying to rule over somebody else. The story of revolution, which is the people who are getting uh, dominated decide to fight back violently. Uh, the story of purification, which is uh, when a group of people find some minority group to bully or, uh, or shame or drive away. Um, uh, then is the story of isolation when you just want to run away from everybody else and you think if you could just be away from them, everything would be fine. Uh, or maybe you build a wall to keep them out. Um, and then is this, is the story of accumulation, which is if I just had more stuff. Uh, and finally the story of victimization, which is poor me, life is so unfair. Uh, you know, I, I just feel sorry for myself. Uh, and, and if we could help kids see how those six stories work, how they, they are characters in those stories every day, and then help them see that, that there's a different way to live uh, rather than us versus them in some way. Uh, and I think that was actually the story that Jesus was telling. He called it the story of the good story of the uh, kingdom of God. And uh, I think that story still the best news anybody ever ever could look for so i wish i could say that we have arrived but you keep writing books because we haven't uh, so what are you working <laughs> on next well uh, i have a book coming out in october that's uh, called the galapagos islands of spiritual journey and this is just a, a treat i feel so fortunate that i got to work on this children's book. And then I was approached by a publisher who said, um, would you uh, go spend some time in the Galapagos Islands and then just write a book about it, write a book of, about your kind of theological reflections on that experience. So uh, that will be out in October. I had so much fun writing it. It's a beautiful place. And it gave me a chance to reflect on evolution uh, and the environment and a whole lot of other subjects that I think are deeply relevant to Christians. Uh, today. Um, and then uh, I'm actually just beginning my next book now, and it will be called Faith After Doubt. So advanced reader copies maybe coming our way? <laughs> uh, not for about a year. Okay. <laughs> just, right. Literally just, just starting, yeah. So you're saying literally don't hold your breath? <laughs> it, it, you, uh, if you hold your breath that long, there's, yeah, it's, it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that, uh, you, you travel, you write, and you dialogue a lot. Um, you're able to connect with, with a lot of different types of people. So who, who is writing and speaking and leading right now that we need to be paying attention to? Uh, what a great question. Well, I love to read. Uh, 
so let me just say, in terms of urgency, I wish that everybody would read uh, Jim Antal's book, Climate Church, Climate World, which is about the role of the church in uh, a time of ecological crisis, climate church, climate world. Um, and, and any other writers, there's so many good writers now who are trying to help us wake up to uh, learn to live with this beautiful earth in the way that God intends. Um, uh, I, uh, I, in terms of stuff I'm, theology I'm reading that I just find intriguing, there's a wonderful Catholic writer, a Franciscan uh, sister named Ilia Delio, and I love her work. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, Ilya is out there on the front edge of grappling with uh, the, what our contemporary science, contemporary philosophy, um, uh, the, the challenges they place. And I personally think once we face those challenges, uh, our faith will become so much more uh, vibrant and, and alive. Um, I... Uh, Oh my gosh, on, on the issue of race, uh, a, a book I read, uh, finished it over a year ago, but I still can't stop thinking about it, is a book called The Half Has Never Been Told, which is a, a history of American slavery. And all I can say is I read that book and uh, it, it, yeah, I, uh, here I am uh, going on two years since I started the book and I still can't stop thinking about it because it forces me to face realities of, of American history that I'm a pretty well-educated, well-read guy, but I never knew before. So, uh, yeah, this would be a couple. Uh, I, I just love to read, so uh, I could keep going. <laughs> maybe the last thing for us to consider in our time, maybe point us to a place of hope. We've, we seem to be in the same place we were in 2016. In fact, you, you shared recently that polls are showing that white evangelical Americans, despite the deep theological dialogue we have had about the gospel implications for voting to support xenophobia and Islamophobia and homophobia and racism, haven't changed their minds and who they are still supporting at the polls. What, what hope can we give to, to local church pastors who are trying to, I guess, nudge congregations into broadening their Jesus worldview? So maybe I could uh, just share uh, something that happened recently uh, uh, with a lot of our Methodist friends. As you, as you probably know, just about everybody probably knows, that the, of course the Methodists have their own peculiar form of organization, but that the, uh, the Methodist, global Methodist body, um, just in some ways not only reaffirmed uh, their uh, uh, traditional view on uh, LGBT equality, but in some ways took a step or two backward and um, from, from kind of the, the, the level of uh, enforcement that they've had. And uh, a, a Methodist minister friend of mine said to me, uh, and I should say she was defrocked because she had performed uh, gay weddings. Um, and she said to me, this decision has awakened all the centrists. In other words, the, the more moderate people in the center realized that it, if they are silent 
they will be sucked into the more fundamentalist and, and conservative wing. Um, and so what it has done is awaken them to say, you can't just be complacent and silent in the center. You actually have to stand up for something. And so what I would say is, I don't want to give people hope that everything is going to be fine. Just relax. I, want, I, I think it's way better to say, uh, if you just relax, things will keep going in the direction they're going. There, there's a resurgence of white supremacy around the world. There's a, a resurgence of authoritarianism and neo-Nazism all around the world. If we just are complacent, there are bad things afoot. What's the old saying from the 19th century British uh, uh, writer uh, uh, Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for the forces of evil to win in this world is for enough good people to do nothing. So I, I don't want to give people a kind of easy hope, but what I do think is what a phenomenal opportunity for more and more of us to wake up and to realize that we've got challenges ahead of us. A uh, quick anecdote. Uh, I have four adult children all in their thirties, but when one of my sons was six and a half, he was diagnosed with leukemia. So we went through three and a half years of daily chemotherapy for him. And, uh, uh, and all I can tell you, it's horrible. You would never wish that on anybody. Uh, but we knew we were alive for those three and a half years. Every day we woke up and didn't take a day for granted. And I think difficult times like this have a way of waking us up and making us not take things for granted. And that to me is a really hopeful thing because uh, what is better than being alive, knowing that your voice is needed, and feeling the spirit empowering you to uh, to rise to the occasion. I have a friend who says that these times are calling forth greatness from all of us. And I think that's, that is a hopeful thing. Well, for those that want to stay connected with Brian, you can follow him on Facebook and Twitter. Purchase Corey in the Seventh Story and don't hold your breath for another book coming out for another year. Uh, Brian, thank you. Thank you for your continued steady wisdom and grace for a convoluted experience called the church. Um, thank you for charging mm -hmm. us to see that hope is fulfilled when we roll up our sleeves and get to work in the way of Jesus. Thanks. Thanks for the good work you're doing. And thanks to all who are listening and, uh, and living out their faith day by day. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.